Hello, hello! Welcome to another episode of Just Two Dudes Reading Theory. I am Chris. I am Preston. And this week we are dipping into a little Foucault. We're reading an essay called Friendship as a Way of Life. And it was fun. Snappy. Eight-page little essay here. Or yeah. a little interview. It's another one of those those reads that was over too fast. It's some of the ones you get into... You, you feel like you haven't really uh, made a dent in all your reading. And this is this is definitely one that kind of just snapped by. Really yeah. enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I like it. And it, so he, in the interview, he's got a clear line of thinking. He's thinking about being a gay man. You know, Foucault was a gay man. Um, and he's thinking about it in terms of how different sexual identities play out in the social sphere in one very simple way, but more importantly, how being a gay man has a different avenue towards pleasure and desire than other identities do. And uh, Friendship as a Way of Life is the essay. Yeah, and the way. most important is that uh, he thinks there's a really specific attitude towards friendship in the gay community. Definitely. And I think there still is actually i mean uh, going to uh, gay clubs and you meet lots of people in the community and i and you learn that there's there's definitely differences in the social sphere between lesbian bars and gay bars but also just different articulations of how friendship work between polyamorous cis people versus polyamorous gay people versus married gay people. It's just, uh, and so this avenue is not just important to him because he's a member of it. He sees clearly something special in it. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, um, I also think that rather than narrowed to just that community, he also makes some pretty good points that Kind of the attitude adopted from, like, this attitude of friendship is something that would be beneficial if adopted by all of us. Yeah, I mean, uh, he makes some definite statement, we statements. And the we is not just, it's like, um, it's like a, a heading and a subheading. The heading is the we is for the gay community, specifically the gay male community. But it also has implications for all of us. And, I mean, he says, what we must work on is not so much to liberate our desires, but to make ourselves infinitely more susceptible to pleasure. Mm. We must escape and help others escape the two ready-made formulas of the pure sexual encounter and the lover's fusion of identities. Yeah, like, uh, you know, and I think, like, there's a lot of critiques here of, I mean, the lineage of psychoanalysis but also just the heteronormative patriarchy, right? Like, it's it's either this or that. I, uh, I like that, uh, I mean, I don't know how early the concept of the spectrum was, but it seems like a very clear argument in favor of this idea that it's not a black and white, at the very least, this is... There's growth to be had in embracing a larger spectrum of, you know, pleasure. identity and pleasure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, and I think I'm using, we're using the word identity in the simple sphere. 
I think Foucault is actually critical of some of the way identity politics would go, because he says right at the beginning, another thing to distrust is the tendency to relate the question of homosexuality to the problem of who am I and what is the secret of my desire? So like <laughs> he doesn't want to be essentialist or like pinning down your identity, but it almost is like a thing that he just isn't interested in focusing on, you know, like, and I think there is like, a, you know, in the nineties, there's a tendency to like, as a blank blank, whatever your blank was, I cannot access the infinite sphere of blank blank identity. So as a white man, I can't access what it's like to be a black person. And in a sense that's true, but I, almost wonder if Foucault thinks that way of approaching these subjects just isn't as helpful as focusing on pleasure. So his follow-up to the quotes you had was, perhaps it would be better to ask oneself, what relations can be established, invented, multiplied, and modulated through homosexuality? And uh, I definitely think that that is more of a, a call to a lot of people to rather than like tie your identity and who you're going to be based upon this. Yeah. Rather, you know, well, I think, just... I think sometimes it's a defensive mechanism, right? Like, so in a, in an unfriendly dominant culture, the minoritarian viewpoints and cultures can become more rigid in the face of external aggression. Oh. You know, like, I mean, I, even worse, look at TERFs, right? Like, they're, oh. like, aggressive towards trans people because they view some incursion, like, into their domain. Yes. And, I, I, by the way, an incursion that's not real, but, like, it's you know, ridiculous. it's ridiculous. But it is a... A perceived threat and I think sometimes I think it happens in any if you're part of any culture that is malaligned with the dominant culture obviously it matters more when your identity is perform more performative so like skin color gender but like I mean you even see it in like fucking like this is on a much lesser level but like new music places oh like this is the minimalist world of new music we don't accept the neo-complexity and atmospheric type stuff and then it's like oh well we're really new music because we are post serial or we're new music because we're doing electronic and work with algorithm and it's like yes you're all you're all new you're music. all new music. <laughs> you're all new music and there's this there's this rigidity like you find a school of thought and you're like you feel like you found some firm grounding but the problem with that is then you gain all these other characteristics you didn't want, Ooh. and they stick. Like, I'm a blues guitarist, right? <laughs> for, you, like, for a while you were talking about how liberating it was to go to college and get out of just, well, this is what I am. I'm part of this camp. Oh, I think it's incredibly, I mean, at least for me, uh, I definitely think that we all kind of have our own journeys when it comes to music, especially, um, and different things work for different people. But I found a lot more growth and, better yet, ability to play the things that I liked yeah. better when I got out of the cliches of what I thought I was supposed to do, thought I was supposed to avoid, because then yeah. it would upset this appearance 
of this specific persona tied to a genre, and it's all nonsense. Yeah, because the, you're never going to be... It's creative free. prison. You're never yes, going to be free. It is, you know? it is and, a creative prison. And, and even in the world of art, you're never going to be free to do what he says here. I mean, I think that like when he talks pleasure, obviously we're talking sexual pleasure, but it maps easily onto aesthetics. It's not like I go out and I listen to country and I go, I don't like country. I really like country. But, like, when I talk to people, there's always this, like, oh, well, like, you know, I don't want to be like that thing. And it's like, oh, well, you know, you don't have to hide away from some pleasure you're scared of. It, also, you, there are people who just honestly hate country for very valid reasons. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the, the people you, who like a lot of popular music, but just kind of are like, look, we all have our limits. You, <laughs> you know? would be amazed at how many, like, gigs we'd have people approach us between sets that would be like, oh man, you guys are great. And you know, you talk to them, they're like, yeah, I just, I love everything except country. I hate country. That stuff sucks. They're like, you may not want to stick around for the next set. There's a couple country. We're going to do some country. Here, yeah. Or like, or, uh, <laughs> and for country and hip hop, I think it also is tied to perceived identity of the other. I don't want to be perceived as a rural white American. I don't want to per be perceived as an urban African American. And I think that that Dude, is a weird problem, but I think it's there. Punk in that group too. Punk. The I don't like, want to be perceived as. Well, what would punk be? Spiky. <laughs> or like, I don't like native music because I don't want to be perceived as trying too hard. I don't want to be perceived as this because I don't want to be. And, and instead, you know, it's I, like it's, like, it's literally why the damned didn't get more credit is because they were good and they didn't look the part. Yeah, they were just, like, great rock and roll musicians. Yeah. Yeah. But <clears throat> it's just bizarre to me that, like, a musical and social movement that was built around, like, anti-conformity turned into a pretty aggressive dress code well, in I a think short that's how, period of time. That's how all popular culture goes. You know, because it, first of all, you can't discount the fact that it's influenced by... Young people, which for a lot of reasons is great. You have a sort of vigorous um, expansion into what they're doing, but you also have the uneasiness mm. of growth as a young person. Whereas, you know, when you get older, it's just it's just different. I think you have a different relationship, and I think that this is more where, at least in a lot of domains, Foucault outlines a sense in which I'm just like, yeah, like that's more where I've grown to in regards to pleasure. I don't really shy away from different types of pleasure, whether it's sexual or aesthetic. I really try to embrace them. And I think that it's funny because in heteronyms, they all can like have their own pleasures where it's negative in a fun way is they all hate each other in a weird way. <laughs> but like, you know, like they're not going to like, like what each other likes. But like, if you focus too hard on these signifiers of identity and community, you might miss the hidden kernel of you that exists just radically on your own. Radically just, just on your Spot own. Spot on. You know. Spot on. Because that's the only way you're going to make yourself get rid of, I guess, the big other in a certain, in fleeting moments or, or move, not, you can't get rid of it, obviously, but like move past that. At the sense. very least, you mm -hmm. won't end up as a 70-year-old angry politician 
hiring escorts behind his wife's back. No, you would just hire escorts in the open. Or like you just, would just be married to a man like you always wanted to be. Oh, we're talking about like the, yeah, a great yeah. deal of, oh, our, yeah. of our politicians. Yeah, and I think there's somewhere else, I don't remember where, Foucault has a quote, something about like, as soon as you mention repression, something in your thinking has gone wrong. And so I think he'd more think of it in the Deleuzian sense of like a desire block or, or a pleasure block. And that would be a way to sidestep psychoanalysis, you know, because he really wants to sidestep that. He does like, like uh, when, you know, when he says we must, you know, not so much work on to liberate our desires in making it more about pleasure instead of desire. I think that's kind of the main point of the essay. Like, I feel like there's a set of that interview I, I keep saying essay because, damn, he's good in an interview. He's just thinking. As I said this before to Preston earlier, but he is just thinking out loud, and it's coming across very fully formed. He could slightly edit the questions, and this would read like an essay. And it might. You know, like, I, I can't, I don't know the history of the interview, um, you know, it's, it's published as a, its own kind of standalone in the hatred of capitalism anthology or the reader, but like, you know, this could be just pulling on the essay he wrote for the magazine that we talk about. Yeah. You know, the, the, uh, the, the first question, you know, he goes, you're in your, the interviewer goes, you're in your fifties. You're a reader of Le Pied. Sorry for my French. It's terrible, which has been in existence now for two years. Those are who contribute to it and read it are between 25 and 35. Is the kind of discourse you find in the magazine something positive for you? Now, he Foucault gave the name of the magazine and contributed articles to it. There's articles, but there are also erotic photography. And I also kind of feel like it's a funny opening question because it does make me think like, well, I open it to masturbate. Right? You know, like, I, I, well, I go for pleasure. It's huh? like, that's kind of my first thought is like, well, yeah, there's essays, but also there's there's pleasure in the open. You know, and I think it's it's more important than a hidden middle-aged man downstairs on a private browser. And you know? also, even stepping outside of anything we're trying to get to here, right off the bat, I think there is something vastly positive in the very beginning of this. Starting with, you're in your 50s, and they're asking, like... How do you feel about this discourse of, you know, reading about a culture that's, you know, two decades removed from you? And he's like, that it exists at all is a positive and important thing. Wish yeah. more boomers would appreciate that. Yeah. Even now, I still like the the generational separation and all these dumb names we use for them just encourages this finger pointing culture that is not helpful fucking not helpful at all well he also what the what he does really well is he brings us to the limit of relationship signification like right at the page two it's like he's talking about different age relationships between a man and a man and talking about how there's a you know entrenched way in which a younger woman marries an older man it just it just happens it still happens and um but, like, for two men, I picture, like, the robot dance of, like, do we kiss? <laughs> you know, like, he he hits it head on where it's like, 
what code would allow them to communicate? Oh. They face each other without terms or convenient words, with nothing to assure them about the meaning of their movement that carries them toward each other. And I think that's the moment where friendship erupts, right? <laughs> Do you think that's become more or less difficult since Foucault wrote this? Oh, God. Preston, think of, I'm not the guy to ask. I've been married for five years. And think of I, how I like, <laughs> much that community has like exploded mm-hmm. yeah. in the, what, 40, 50 years since he wrote this? Right, but there is... There's a positive and a negative in, in, a, in a really big way. So the obvious overwhelming positivity of legalizing gay marriage and all of these great um, getting rid of laws that prevent gay people from teaching, from being in the social sphere is all, is all great because you bring people out into the open and the pleasure can now be in the open. So like, you know, the article exists, the, the, the magazine existing at all is a positive for Foucault. And in a sense, I think that that's where we were at then. Where we're at now is a little trickier because first of all there's still there's still just a lot of hate which was still around and you know even the same in certain ways then but i think there's also this aspect where when you bring everyone into the fold you know gay culture is now dominant american culture i don't think it is <laughs> i don't think everyone's watching Dragula, <laughs> or not Dragula? Is it Dragula? You know, they, dra- they dress up and they do the fear factor stuff. Anna watches it, and I watched it a couple times. Very fun, a drag artist yeah. reality show. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Dragula, and I don't think everyone's watching that, but a lot of people are probably watching Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. You know, mm. um, but I think that there's a moment I forget where he says it in here where he kind of mentions the fear of losing that other space like that that'll just get absorbed into the hole um i don't remember where it is though it kind of says i don't remember where maybe we can um well i don't know but you know it's uh, well, we'll probably find it at some point but it might even be elsewhere where he says it, but... Is it towards the end here? Oh, as soon as a program is presented, it becomes a law, and there's a prohibition against inventing. Yes, I think that's part of it, right? Like, the idea that when you're then enveloped by the dominant social discourse, that might have a weird effect of actually retroactively cheapening aspects of the community. So or, you know, I, keeping the radicality of the difference maybe I, would be the better way to say I it. I think this actually still kind of ties back into like the identity part that we talked about with like the music is as soon as like it starts to become popularized and yeah. it's no longer this other thing, it starts to have these rules that you're supposed to follow. Yeah. And the inventiveness in it begins to disappear and like I mean and then you die sorry like let me just like and then you and then this you, is and then you solidify and you become cranky <laughs> think know, this is you know? why the blues as a genre has <laughs> had these weird like just almost completely disappearing to becoming really popular we're on yeah. a little bit of a rise with it lately but it 
there's a great quote that I think it was Joe Bonamassa that said, like, the thing about blues is it's relatively easy to get to the moderate level of playing blues. Yeah. But it is infinitely difficult to get to, like, that next level where you're noticed amongst the typical cliches that a lot of people feel like you're expected to do. One of the biggest ones that Kari complains about all the time that I agree with is just so many blues writers suck at writing lyrics. It's all so cliche. It's the same stories being told over and over again. Or the same, like, or the hammy ones. (laughs) Yeah, it's just... Chicken, chicken, chicken. (laughs) By the way, uh, for those of you who are much more enveloped in the world of psychoanalysis, it is not lost on... Preston and I, the idea that when we also talk about pleasure in music, you can infer the same logic goes for our sexual lives. It's just not a podcast topic. It's easier to talk about <laughs> diversifying my musical taste than, on than a podcast. showing or yeah. you know fully coming out to what we do in our private lives. But I but the 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 sentiment for both of us still rings true. Of exploration and game and creativity. Oh, I used the word. I I put a prohibition. Oh no! I used the word. Oh shit! Inventiveness in the <laughs> bedroom. Uh, yeah. I mean, they did kind of happen simultaneously, so it's a very, it's a very entwined thing. You but know. But like, once you find that avenue. It's not like a thing where you're like, okay, I'm like paranoid and sitting here waiting for the next great inspiration. You find an avenue towards difference that is itself a mechanism to move things forward. It's not like you you find something different and you go, well, now I'm complete or some nonsense. You go, oh, well, this is an avenue towards more difference. And then you just feel more alive, personally. I mean, that's just kind of, I know this is a little more self-helpy than I usually talk, but like, yeah, it's like, that's... I, I but, take this interview, by the way, as Foucault's self-help book. <laughs> like, uh, right? Like, yeah, that that's pretty good. <laughs> I Sometimes I think about, like, stuff like this or your musical tastes. Like, you're flying through space, and initially you got your little spaceship here, but all your discoveries are flying through these layers of debris that are just adding to your ship that... Yeah you don't realize you're just making it a hell of a lot better as you get farther and farther out there. Yeah. Rather than just staying in your own little orbit and, no, I don't go through that trash. I'll stay here in this little orbit. Well, that's what I think, like, forever. Uh, you know, when we think about philosophy, in the dominant culture, there's still, the, there's an old caricature, very famous in the early 19th century or late 18th century, where it was like, it showed Immanuel Kant at the desk and he had this huge brain and he's just like at a desk or something writing. And I think that people like Jean-Paul Sartre and, and Foucault just, no, no, Foucault's outliving his goddamn life. <laughs> like, it's not like you're sitting there and then, you know, writing obviously all the time as well, but like writing as an intertwined act of like, remaking things and making things instead of this this really old school view of the philosopher as some stuffy man in his study neglecting his family. <laughs> I, I think it ties in well with what we were talking about with 
Foucault before we started the podcast and how it he's not repetitive because he's constantly thinking. Yeah, he's, he's moving He's moving forward, forward as he mm-hmm. exists. And I just, I kind of love that idea a lot more than this, like, your thinking becomes the dominant thing that then influences your living. Because I think there's kind of a play and a balance there that you're going to gain a lot more. Yeah. Oh, you're going to gain more in, like, the limit, the far... The far-reaching pleasure. Yes, I think you're right. I think also that you can see this in others' work before they're going to see it themselves, I think. This is something as a reader you're going to perceive. Um, you know, there's always an anxiety when you're working, like, did I did I say this already? But if you found the track where it's going to be new, I think your chances of repetition are going to be more long-winded you go 20 years and suddenly you realize you're thinking back to what you were thinking as an 18 year old, huh. you know, and that's, that's more interesting to me. I mean, I think that like one person I would say where on this level, his work suffers just personally. Um, this is just a personal stylistic thing, probably a low ball critique, but you know, Zizek talks a lot. And that he's super prevalent as well. Like, I mean, he's yeah. writing a lot. All the, like, all online the books, things all that the he journals, does, the books. A man in letters. But it but is... It is hard to ignore that, like, even in my minimal amount of reading him in comparison to you, I have every single one. You've already heard it. Every <laughs> one of them... There's a thing has not just like a little bit. There tends to be like a good bit of overlap in these things. And that's on one hand fine. I think of him as like a Lego set where he's been making different buildings with the same set of Legos for like 20 years or 50 years. He needs a new variety pack at this point. But that's the opposite of Lacan. Lacan is another thinker I think that. You know, it's funny. He's the type of thinker where he's too egotistical to say, I just completely changed my mind. But his concepts are, every seminar, there's a new edition. And it's not a new edition in the sense of, like, let me try and articulate something a little more. He does that. Don't get me wrong. Like, he has these slogans that come back. Desire is the desire of the, or the unconscious is the desire. Oh, my gosh. Whatever the one is. uh, There is no metal language. All the, all the famous maxims. But, but. Every single seminar, I mean, though, I just, I'm reading the one that got published in English this year, Seminar 16, and now he's read Marx. And so now we have, instead of surplus, surplus, uh, oh my gosh, what's it called? Um, from, uh, not surplus labor, but, you know, from Marx, the concept, um, you have surplus jouissance. And now he has to fit it all into his new framework. Um, and so it's pretty surplus value. God, wow. That was an easy one to just forget. So surplus value, he now maps onto surplus jouissance. And it's like, that's a great thinker is, is always moving forward to the, to the chagrin of everyone who's trying to pin someone down. And I don't know. It's definitely something I think I admire a little more and being early into this journey into philosophy is one of the few things I have definitely adopted 
as we've gone through all of this stuff is just, you know, I'm not really going to, like, settle on a yes. This is the thinking. This is the way I will stay here and it will provide me the answers. Because it just seems stagnant and... I don't know. Like yeah. Well, I think I think to get deep, I think there's a side too, which is that there is a stable plane. I'll call it, which is like a grounding concept or a grounding idea that I think flourishes in a great thinker's work throughout their life. Mm. That a, it ha, if it's a great idea, you could almost say like a definition of a great grounding thought for a thinker is one that takes the lifetime to outplay. It becomes a tree, not a stock. It's not the same idea we're hounding on a million times over. It's a starting point of thought that branches into all this other great stuff. And that's where that's where like I'm throwing my like my Heidegger in there of like, well, you know, like every thinker has one great thought. He didn't mean that like you go and you find the good quote in Nietzsche and then try and retro apply it to everyone. But there is some sort of like. There was a point where there's a point of convergence, yeah. Uh, Whether it's will to power, or just the genealogy that he does with Foucault, it's archaeology or the critique of power. But that just keeps flourishing. It branches into a bunch of other things, so it's not repetitive. We're not talking about the same thing. No, just using different metaphors. No, it's not like a like a like an angry drunk guy. Officer, I have my keys. We know you have your keys. You, you can't drive home. I'm driving home. No, we know you can't drive <laughs> You know, it's like... I haven't been drinking. Yes, yeah. you have. <laughs> and then you're just in these loops. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I want to talk more about his ending of it, where he says, the idea of a program of proposals is dangerous. As soon as a program is presented, it becomes a law, and there's a prohibition against inventing. I know you already said it. I had to say it again, because it's, it's, so it's a good quote. It's so good. Because I, I think that... Okay, I this is the cancel me tendency to do this in not yeah. like in every culture. Religions do it. Yeah. Groups of people have this weird tendency to go from being othered to suddenly like creating a very strict way of how you have to be or going from as it becomes per- programmatic. Yeah, like uh, in religion it'd be the movement from perpetual revelation like the revelation of God unfolds in time throughout mm. existence to it, it's unfolding now in this way that comes from this way and then it's set in stone and then everyone argues about how it's set in stone. And <sighs> yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, it's funny because I'm not religious, but like if I were religious, I would subscribe to a perpetual revelation model where it's like, well, the only beliefs that are going to be really not the only beliefs, but like the future is going to hold another piece of the puzzle. It's, I mean, I guess that's one of the things that, you know, the, the Mormon church had, they, they are kind of they perpetual revelation, have, right? The, the problem is the perpetual revelation seems to just be the same bullshit until it becomes economically unviable. That is. Well, Yeah. As soon as, as soon as that tax status gets threatened, suddenly, divine revelation. 
We, have we got new... some new rules around here. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's been the Mormon Church's divine revelation since the beginning, for not only economic reasons, but like marital reasons it's... or other reasons. Is like, oh well, some external force has to push us. I think it has to be imminent, like to be a good thing. Is <laughs> it has to be from the source that it will unfold, not this like it has unfolded. Um, I think also the idea. Of, so the idea I was gonna get like this is my. Do you remember Milo Yiannopoulos? I do. What happened? So I've not been keeping up, and I, I don't really care. But there was a moment. So he wasn't canceled for the horrible writing, which alone should have just it was abysmal. But like should have should have gotten him just, just cut out of our wavelengths. But he was he and he said all these horrible things, and he was a terrible person. But he said some arguments that were kind of wild. Like, one of the arguments he had was, like, um, you know, that gay culture, when it existed in the shadows, it was liberatory, and now that it's in the... He kind of repeated some of the things that we just said. And then what was weird is he was canceled for being a... Like, like talking about what we would call grooming, but was a is a phenomenon that exists, and isn't as cancelable as everything else he talked about and it was weird that that was the line where he was no longer acceptable for the right wing was just talking about how young people don't have a model and sometimes older people give them that in the gay community and it's like i mean that's that's in I the mean, foucault essay it's i can't like, really say i'm surprised that's what got him canceled by the right wing you're too close to the truth of us, too! Shut the fuck up! <laughs> Not yet! Not we got, yet. like, five, ten more years before we openly start talking about that. Yeah, but it was just... Matt weird. Walsh will have his day, you wait. Yeah, yeah, right? Like, But it was just a weird... I remember that moment and, and talking about it and being like, well, this is a d different type of phenomenon than, like, a pastor grooming a child in their congregation it's not really the same thing it's not <laughs> and it's like all. and it was weird because i think that was i mean obviously why he was and, canceled but I mean, wasn't he also kind of hinting that like he older gay people were like grooming people to be gay who normally wouldn't which is inherently dumb yeah that's stupid i mean i i'm, I'm sure that you know, there's there's victims that that happens to, and that, that, that's horrible. But like originally, when he talked about it, it was more of a cultural thing. It wasn't really that. And then and then he probably said something worse, and I didn't I didn't catch it. But like when Foucault is here as a fifty year old man, reading about the antics of of course of age people, we're talking about twenty five to thirty five. You know, but he talks about the imbalance of age. And I think that one of the things that you can tell that's that's also a part of that is the idea that young gay men don't have a model of how to be gay at this time in the world. And so Ooh. that's where the friendship side of the culture at the time enters, I think. Which is fine. If everyone's of age and consenting, it doesn't yeah. seem to be a problem. Obviously, Milo is not talking about people of age, which is definitely a problem. But yeah. but it, it's it's still a similar phenomenon. And 
I don't know. It's it's weird to think that I just mentioned that weirdo's name, but that's the other place where I heard that other argument of the exceptional gay culture being brought into the fold and losing its vitality. Mm. So I don't know. What other parts did you really like? Um, I really liked the way he ended this. It was great. Just the last line. Um, so we must think that what exists is far from filling all possible spaces. Hmm. To make a truly unavoidable challenge of the question, what can we make work? What new game can we invent? Yeah. I, I don't know. I kind of like that idea in so many things. I mean, obviously, music's a big one for us. Yeah, it's our big creative outlet. And, like, I... Yeah, like, that has to happen. Could you imagine if we just stopped at one point and were like, well, Wagner was right, and all shall be Wagner. Well, I mean, there's a lot of 18 to 22-year-olds who go through the academy to get a composition degree. And the way the academy is structured is such that Foucault would really not like it. Um, you know, you go and you learn as a young... Let's say you you know, you know write some stuff in high school and it's kind of fun and you, you get in. You, don't, you get in usually on an instrument and then you go and you learn to compose in college. And the first things you learn in college are... Like classical music theory, yep. you learn get your, your one two chords, years of it before your... I even started jazz history. Yeah, which what it what that implicitly says is this is our model of music. Yep. And while I think it's great to get a deep knowledge of the history of the world you're working in, I also think that composers should be exposed to living other composers, professionals today. Like like as soon as you get to college, there should be a course of like listening to contemporary music or something mm. where you don't know anything about the theory you're just hit with music and you're this is the landscape i think that's a great idea but we you know in some places do it but you know you just you know just like a basic repertory class and the kids are not going to be able to read the music very well and they're going to have no idea about some of the extended techniques and the technology but we all got ears that's all you need you know the points to listen so Let's go. Yeah. Let's get them in. Yeah. And then when they show up as juniors in the composition classes or they're, or they're beginning composing in these, what we call seminar classes, um, is that first of all, they're with their peers who are also kind of scared to be there and not sure what they want to do when they grow up. And so you have this culture of like, well, maybe I'll test it out. Well, I don't know what they'll think of it. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't. And and then you have other students who just go. And I think for the students who get that, there is a real danger that they're going to leave, um, or at least leave the first couple years, having written a really nice Schubert art song. <laughs> so that was just like, you made the point. I just kind of like, yeah, so no, this is that's, true. It's kind of spot on. I mean, that's I didn't start enjoying composition until I mm -hmm. stopped worrying about whether or not I was making... Is, but is it jazzy enough? Like, yeah. am I going to get in trouble for not, like, doing something right here? Right. But the stuff where I just did what I liked, and I liked the sound of it, was usually the stuff I got, you know, more praise over. Because it wasn't just a rehashing of, like, 
the same stuff. Like, it, there's yeah all these bits and pieces of all this collection of music and taste that you have and the stuff you like to hear combined with a general goal of something new there. I think it's a lot better way to invent than like going a safe route on what you think is going to be the correct answer when it comes to composing music. Because that, I feel like if you're looking for the correct answer, you're kind of off onto the wrong foot with composing. <laughs> with making a new object in the world. Yeah, I well, and I also think, yeah, I think you're totally right. I mean, I think, so, switching gears to talk about this Foucault as a whole, I, I think that the real way in which he's trying to switch the way we talk um, is to get away from realizing our true desire in his mind. He, I don't think he thinks that exists. But also, when sh we shift that focus, we don't worry so much about the big other. Ooh. In terms of, not like just language use, but like in terms of am I doing the right thing? Am I doing this? And I think that Foucault is really trying to give a program of existing adjacent to some law. Mm. Um, Cause I think that for him, that's where humanity, like he really likes the idea of the fact that when two different gay men face each other of different ages, they face each other without terms or convenient words because I think what he's really triumphing there is the idea that that's when interpersonal friendship is going to arise. Is mm. I don't know if I agree necessarily. I mean, I can <laughs> see where he's where he's coming from. Yeah, because like removed of all of the um, like expected relationship cliches. You know, there it kind of forces you to be more personal in this relationship with yeah. this person. Um, but I also think that there is a, a darker end to that. There's a little, there's a little sense that the state of nature is a little positive. You know, like he's not gonna be presenting you with any like two cavemen from different tribes show up on a field and they have to negotiate. And like, he'd probably be on the side of like, they'll negotiate resources and whatever. It'll be fine. Instead of like, they'll just kill each other. And I think that like in framing it as eminently positive, which I think everything he's talking about in the community is, is a positive a thing in terms of realizing pleasure. I do think that there is a little bit of, there's a lot of stuff outside of what we're talking about that the other side of me would go, well, are some of these pleasures dependent on being outside of a dominant culture that does exist? Interesting. So, like, I don't think he wants to say that. I think what he wants to say is that whatever line you're cutting, you're just cutting a line in a field. And you, you're going to meet another person in that field, and then that's where friendship comes from. But I, I do wonder if, like, in this in this thinking in terms of outside of the dominant culture, if there's an aspect of, like, what would we do if there was no 
dominant culture and are any of the pleasures there dependent on the dominant culture to be realized? Ooh. I don't have a good answer for that. I don't think it's in that. Yeah. It's not in the interview. Uh, but... Oh, man. Interesting. I think, actually, I loved it, though. Overall, I really enjoyed reading it. Yeah. Uh, I said this to Preston earlier. Foucault comes across as a kind of a friendly dude. I have a beer with him. Yeah, I don't know. In terms of the philosophers we've read, there's the definite, like, we'll hang out with. None of them I would let watch my pets. But, um... I just (laughs) none of them I would let they're all gonna let them die it just reminded me I had a thought do you have the feeling that like hanging out with Tehran would be like a human Eeyore like just you're in the middle of a fun conversation and everything he drops is just like yeah alright thanks thanks buddy you know it's like, oh hey. man, I got so mad, I almost killed myself. And then Chiran just says, but we always commit to a suicide. Too late. Too late. late. Alright, Chiran, okay. can you help finding your tail again? What are we What are we doing here, buddy? Get back wandering the streets Come in the on, middle of the night. Let's go find your tail. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like a lot of the thinkers here. VF Cordova, I'd you know, love to hang out with. I'd love to hang out with Carol Narby and I would the Harrowave. And then, you know, like, we know that we would never want to hang out with Lovecraft. <laughs> I mean, God, the guy's awful. Oh. And I, I just think that Foucault is on the side of, would learn something from being around. Dude, I just get the feeling from even looking at Lovecraft, the dude's a well-actually guy, but he's also, like, a raging racist. So, like, the whole party, he's just well-actualing, just dropping this horrible shit the whole time. Like, who the fuck invited Lovecraft? <laughs> like, the dude is the biggest goddamn bummer. Well, actually, I'll tell you who's a bummer. God fucking damn it. I know, and it's weird because he's funny and self-critical a lot in his work and the letters, but but not about the things that we're talking about. <sighs> well, yeah, I'm good. That was great. Yeah, that was a fun one. Thank you all for listening and... We'll see you next week. Indeed, until next time.